Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to live for you rather than ourselves. Help us, as your word says, to take our eyes off earthly things and set our sight with great perseverance and patience on things that are unseen, on things above, so that our life may not be wasted, that it would be filled with eternal purpose, that we would love you and help people to love you as you've taught us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I have some great news for you this morning. Are you ready for good news? Not much of it available currently in, uh, in the world, it seems. Um, this morning, I am, I, well, you'd have to be a pastor and be a pastor for as long as I've been a pastor to fully get it. Um, ten, about 10 years ago, God sent uh, a young man into our church family who already knew Christ but was really beginning to grow in Christ. And he started asking the kinds of questions that tell you as a young pastor yourself that someone is really starting to feel the love and the purpose of God stirring in his life. Um, his name is John Vo. And John completed an undergrad and a graduate degree in mathematics and was headed into that life. In other words, he's smart. If your kid is struggling in math, that's the guy, okay? Uh, he, can, he can take your so-so student and turn him into a star if math is the issue. Uh, but he felt a call to ministry, so he, he left those studies behind and entered seminary and received a Master of Divinity from uh, the Master's Seminary here in Southern California and became a pastor. Uh, God then led him to, as he so often does, he led him to a young lady. They got married. They have three wonderful children. And just a few months ago, God brought him back into our church family after 10 years of pastoring himself. He's going to open the word to us uh, this morning, and I'm, I'm just overjoyed, okay? Wait till you hear. Would you help me welcome our newest pastor on staff, Pastor John Vogt? Thank you. Well, thank you, Pastor Bruce. Uh, I am the new kid on the block, although uh, I don't know if I can promise to make your kid a math star. Um, probably the only thing I can promise is that I can tell him some numbers and some letters and some variables, and we'll see what he does with that. <laughs> but, and if you didn't get that, then maybe... Then there goes my teaching skills. Uh, not a good start, but uh, no, I, I, you know, I am the new kid on the block here, and uh, I'm just so joyed, overjoyed to be at Crosspoint. Um, if I have not met you, and there is a lot of you, uh, even if I've not met you, come say hi to me, drop an email, uh, let me know. I love coffee. I drink coffee all hours of the day. It makes the world go round, so we can have a cup of joe, and we can have a conversation. I'd love to get to know all of you. Um, but just... Uh, you know, I, by way of introduction of myself and in, even into our message this morning, you know, just a little bit about myself. My parents um, are refugees. We're, we're refugees from Vietnam. I'm Vietnamese. Uh, I'm a first-generation American, uh, if you want to say that's first-generation. I was the only one born here. Uh, but they were refugees. They, they left Vietnam in, in a really small boat and somehow landed in the Philippines, um, and that's a story in and of itself, so you can ask me that someday, but uh, they landed in the Philippines and then flew over to America, and then they started their lives, and here is where I was born, and what's interesting about, you know, that dynamic for our family is that as my parents were learning the American culture and the American way of life and enjoying all the benefits of living in America, right, I was learning the same thing, right, we were learning together, 
right? Uh, as I was growing up, they were growing up in, in this country. And one of the things that we never really did growing up, I can probably count on one hand the number of times that we've done this, is we never really went to the doctors. Uh, part of it was because my dad didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> but uh, he's like, why don't I need no money? We, we ain't, ain't going to pay for that. Uh, but, uh, but the other part of it is, and, and this is what I think, I, I never really asked them, I probably should ask them, but it, is that, you know, we are, back in Vietnam, my family, we're, we're rice, rice farmers. We were in the rice fields. And we lived in the countryside. And so, you know, you didn't really have doctors over there. And, and so coming over here, they just probably didn't think it was a necessity. And it wasn't until I met my lovely wife that my world began to expand on that, you know, certain things that happen to you. Hey, there's, there's things called medication and, and there's things that can help you get better. One of that was uh, allergy medication. I actually suffered through allergy all my entire life. There were certain seasons where I would nonstop sneeze almost every minute. My nose was dripping with mucus, like just pouring out of my face, and I'm wiping it all the time, right? It was just, it was kind of nasty, actually. And, and I thought this was normal. This is just life in America, right? <laughs> you know, I was like, this, this, is, this is just what you go through, right? And I, I, I met my wife, and, and, you know, I met her around when I was entering in seminary, and, and she said, maybe you have allergies, and I said to her, what's that? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, what, what is allergies? I'm perfectly a healthy human being. And she, and, you know, and she said, you know, why don't you, it was, it was uh, the spring semester, I think it was the second semester I was in seminary, I was struggling through my allergies. I was sneezing and just, again, just snot rolling down my face. And she said, why don't you just try Benadryl? I'm like, what is this? She's like, don't worry. It's allergy medication. I don't have allergies. Just try this, okay? Buy, just buy this Benadryl. You'll be fine. I said, hey, well, this is a girl I'm trying to marry, so let me just do everything she says, right? Okay, so because <laughs> everything she says, I'm just going to do because I want to marry her. And so I went to the store, bought my Benadryl, and then um, I had this 7.30 morning class. I mean, I mean, 7.30 class. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Why would you do a 7.30 morning class? And it was Hebrew of all classes. Oh, anyway, so I go to this class, 7.30 in the morning. I pop the Benadryl before I leave from my house. So I pop the Benadryl, go to class, 7.30, I sit there. Now, I'm sitting in class, about 10 minutes go through, and I'm like my eyes are like, oh, man, what's wrong with my eyes? I'm just blinking so much. Must be the lights or something like that, right? I'm just blinking. And by the way, I'm like two rows behind the professor. Like he's right there. I'm trying to be the good student. I'm like right in front of him. I'm like, I'm going to take every, I'm here to learn the Bible and to, to, to do what I'm called to do. And I'm sitting, I'm looking at him and my eyes just start to blink. And, and then next thing you know, I'm yawning left and right. I'm like, oh, man, I'm getting a little tired here. Oh, that, you know, and so I start smacking my face. Right, wake up, John, wake up. You got this, you got this, right? And then... Next thing you know, right, you see the Mr. Bobblehead action. Just, 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 trying to, just trying to stay awake here. I think I make about 10 minutes of fighting. I've struggled and I fought for about 10 minutes. And next thing you knew, I wake up in a pool of drool on my desk and the class is over. And I was like, what just happened? Well, again, as some of you probably already seeing, right, I, I didn't know that there was a non-drowsy medication, right? I bought the drowsy one, right? And I took the drowsy Benadryl, and it, I mean, and I never taken this in my entire life, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I just fell asleep throughout the whole class. And, you know, really, as a student, right, 
there's only two things that you need to do as a student. Stay awake and pay attention, right? That's all you got to do. Stay awake and pay attention. And I couldn't do either, obviously, because I was sleeping the whole class. And, you know, I just, you know, I remember feeling, I mean, I, I failed as a student. I offended my professor. I apologize. I mean, he didn't really mind that much, actually. I apologized to him. He said, hey, it happens to the best of us, right? Um, and I don't really consider the best of us, but, hey, it happened to me. And, uh, you know, but, but I failed, right? And now, that's just, you know, we, we hear that. It's a little minor thing. But when we think about this idea of failure, right, we've all been there. We've all been there. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, we, we failed. We have failed. We failed in the certain tasks that we've tried to accomplish. We failed in the roles that God has called us to, whether it's being a father, a mother, a good student, and a good employee. We have failed spiritually. We don't just struggle with sin, but we fall into it countless times. Not only is failure a common experience that every single one of us has in this room, right? It is an inescapable fact that we will continue to fail throughout our lives. And it doesn't stop there. We also have the fear of failure. <clears throat> that at times we can be so afraid of doing something, that failing at something, that we never start to begin with. We're just immobilized. So great is the fear of failure that there are Countless books written that you can read today about having a successful life or leading a successful life. <clears throat> now, what I don't want to do today or this morning is to harp on failures. This would be a very discouraging message to start off Crosspoint with, right? What I want to do is I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about how God's grace, how our relationship with Christ and faith in him, how the gospel helps us through our failures, helps us triumph our failures and fears of it. <clears throat> Today we're going to see three different types of failures, three different types of failures, and I'm going to work through each one of those, and we're going to look at how God's grace covers all of them, how God's grace covers each and every one of them. And so the first type of failure, turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, the first type of failure we're going to see is failure in life situations. Failure in life situations. This is, again, kind of the, uh, the circumstances of our life, the roles that we may be given, right, a task, a goal, or being a father, or a mother, or a, uh, a student, a son, or a daughter. Uh, these are life situations that God has placed us in. And I'm going to read here from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 69 to 75. This is... The uh, passage where Peter denies Jesus, if a little bit of context before we jump in there, right? Jesus has been arrested. All his disciples have abandoned him. He's before, the, uh, he's before Caiaphas in the council, right? And he's being tried, unjustly, of course. And Peter here is on the outskirts watching what's going on, okay? And in verse 69, it reads, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, 
Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This narrative, in my estimation, of Peter's denial of Jesus is the most epic failure in all of the Bible. The most epic failure. You have here Peter, who again, not too long ago, said to Jesus, I will never leave your side. If all fall away, I won't. I will be there right to the end. Nothing will stop me from being with you. Yet here we see Peter. Jesus is all alone. He's been arrested. He's alone. And Peter is following the outskirts, following from a distance. And as he's falling from a distance, looking at what's happening to Jesus, right, he's, he's confronted three times. And he, de- and he denies three times. And, and if you look at the text, his denial grows in severity. Right? Look at the first one, right? Again, it's just a simple denial. Right? He just says, I don't know what you mean. Wait, wait, don't you, don't you know Jesus? Don't you know him? I don't know what you mean. Don't know what you're talking about. Right? Someone else, little girl comes up to him and is like, no, 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 I, I think you do know him. Don't you know who he is? And he, and he basically equivalently says, no, I promise to you, I promise, I don't know the guy. I don't know who Jesus of Nazareth is, right? So simple denial, now the promise. And then we see finally, right, the bystanders come up and they say, no, no, your accent betrays you. You're one of them. You're one of the disciples. You do know who Jesus of Nazareth is. And what do we see? He then invokes a curse upon himself, which is equivalent of saying today, right, like, you know what? If I know this, Jesus of Nazareth, may God send fire, hell, and brimstone on me right now. May he just kill me right now because I don't know Jesus. That's what's happening here. His denial grows in severity. And, of course, we read about the rooster crowing, and then Peter remembers what Jesus said. Peter failed Jesus. He failed him as a disciple. He's failed him as a friend. And at this very moment, no matter what Peter has did before Jesus, this moment of denial marks a sweeping failure of Peter's relationship to Jesus. I mean, that's kind of how we remember Peter a little bit, right? He's the guy who denied Jesus three times. But because God's grace, Peter does not remain in this state, right? Because of God's loving mercy and grace, he restores Peter. We read about that in the Gospel of John. And he becomes one of the foremost apostles, a leader among equals. But man, when we read this, man, did Peter sure fall hard. He fell hard with this failure. He must have hit rock bottom. We don't read about what happened in between his denial here and the restoration. But he must have had a feeling of guilt, shame, complete disappointment in himself. He must have had a sense that his whole world came crashing down upon him. Perhaps that there's no point in going back to Jesus because he's done the impossible. Or, I mean, he's done something so terrible that it's impossible for him to go back. Everything was wrong. And when we read that, right, we think about our own lives. I'm, I'm 
I'm sure we've all been there before. Right? We've all been there. It doesn't have to be as severe as Peter, right? But we've all failed someone we've loved. We've failed in simple tasks or difficult ones. We failed in obtaining our goals, whether they be simple or grand. In our, fa- in our failures, we feel the guilt, the shame, the disappointment, perhaps the feeling that there's no point in trying anymore because we can never do anything right. We drown ourselves in, in sorrow, incapable to move forward sometimes. And for others, maybe we do move forward, but the failure never really leaves our mind. You know, I, um, my, work, uh, my wife began part-time work about a year ago or so. Um, she's now doing full-time work. But when she started working, it was, a, it was quite a change. She was at home with the kids for a, a number of years. And uh, as she went back to this part-time work, you know, basically the package was she would go to work and I would take care of the kids. Now, the oldest was in transition kindergarten, so I didn't really have to take care of him. I had my two youngest, right, my, my second son and my youngest daughter, whom I love, and she, can never, she doesn't have to leave the house if she doesn't want to. Um, she can just be with me forever. Okay, um, that's, that's, my, that's my pumpkin. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, so I'm taking care of the two here, and, and uh, we're home, and we're playing, and my son, he's off playing his trucks, or I don't know what he was doing, right? Clearly, I only want to play with my baby girl. <laughs> and so I, I'm, I'm with her, and we're sitting at the table, and she's on my lap, and I forget what I was doing, but she was fiddling with some stuff. She was playing with something, and she somehow got a pencil in her hand, and she was playing with this pencil. And I'm thinking, oh, pencil, what a wonderful toy. Okay, so she's playing with the pencil. And then she starts to stick the eraser in her mouth, right? She's sticking, she's chewing on the eraser, and I, and I look at that, and I go, Mom, don't know if that's a good idea for her to put that in her mouth. I don't think it's toxic. It's fine. All right, so, so she's, she's sucking away on the eraser, right? She's just in her mouth. She's sucking away on the eraser. And then somewhere in like about span of 30 seconds, she turns the pencil around, and she's now chewing the, you know, the lead side of the pencil. It's in her mouth, and she's chewing it. And I look to her again. She's on my lap. I look to her, and, and I think to myself, that doesn't look good. That's okay. It's a toy. It's a toy, right? No problem. It's okay. And then about maybe about 15 to 30 seconds later, what happens is she slips off my lap, falls to the ground, and as she falls to the ground, the the pencil just stabs right into the cheek. Blood is gushing everywhere. I... I'm freaking out as a dad. This is, I've, I mean, I've never taken care of the kids by myself before, okay? I'm just going to fully admit that, full disclosure here, right? I've always had help with the wife. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, there's blood. She's crying at the top of her lungs. Blood is gushing out. I'm like, what do I do? Oh, my gosh, what do I do? And my wife and I made this pact, right? She said, you don't call me at work because she uh, worked with autistic kids, and, and so she was always in the homes with these autistic kids. And, um, and so she was always with somebody. And I wasn't to call her unless there was an emergency, which meant, you know, 911 was being called. And I'm sitting there thinking, I need to call 911. I see blood. 911 is the solution here. I, I think I need to call my, And I'm holding the phone, and I'm about ready to call my wife. And, and you know, something hits me, and I say, you know what, let's, let's rinse out her mouth. And I gave her a drink of water. Instead of telling her to spit it out, she drinks it down. All the blood goes down, <laughs> right? And the blood's gone. And I'm like, oh. Thank Jesus, right? She says, she's not bleeding anymore. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was, okay, and everything is okay. My wife gets home not too long later, right, and, 
And she just sees me sitting there in the chair, just dejected. And she's like, what's wrong? And I begin to tell her, I am the worst father in the world, right? I, I, I don't know how to take care of our kids. What, what, why, do, why did I father kids? I can't do anything right. You know, I can't take care of them. And I just felt like a complete failure as a dad. I mean, I, I mean, all the signs were there, right? You know, held the pencil, put it in her mouth with the eraser, turned it around. I mean, it's like God is saying, hey, I gave you three clear signs to take the pencil away from her, and you didn't do any one of those, right? I mean, how more clear could I be? <laughs> and I just didn't do any single one of those. Ah, it's, just, it's just complete failure. And we have those moments, right? We have those moments. It's that feeling of utter despair. I, I, I can't do anything right. I am such a failure. But what does the gospel have to say about all this? What does the gospel have to say about our feelings of, of failures in our life situations? And I just want to remind us of two simple truths here. Two simple truths with this type of failure. First, and perhaps most importantly, right, it is to remember that your identity is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. We have to remember before all things, right, we are not identified by some task, by some goal, or some role that we may have. Yes, I am a father, but I'm not identified as that. Yes, I am a husband, but I'm not identified by that. Yes, I am a pastor, but that is not what identifies me. What identifies me is my salvation in Christ, that I am a son of God, that he has saved me by his Grace. And is this identity marked by the grace of God in Christ that the desires of the world or the roles that we've been given or all those things, right, those things kind of fall into the secondary category. And then those feelings of failure slowly go away as we remember that God is a gracious and loving and merciful God and our identity is in him and not the things that we do. Secondly, we have to remember that even in failures, God is good. God is being good, and he's helping us grow in our faith in Christ. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that, though, for, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What this tells us is that nothing happens to us, which includes failures, is for our bad if we are God's children. In fact, everything, including our failures, is for our good and our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you really think about it, if you really think about it, failures aren't true failures in the eternal sense. Failures aren't true failures in the eternal sense because through the failures, God is drawing us in a closer relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. He's growing us to trust him more to love him more, to depend upon him more. And so we need not be discouraged when we fail in life situations. We just can be encouraged to remember that our identity is in Christ and to be encouraged that God is using all these means to grow us in his son. The second type of failure we see this morning is a failure in sin. A failure in sin. This type of failure is spiritual in nature. And it has to do with our failure to uphold and obey God's word in our lives. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here's a little context here. This is about King David. 
And he's going to describe a little bit about his sin. His sin with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It reads this. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent to Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from a roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and, he came to him, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she, said and told, she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now there's a lot more that happens. I won't read into it. All right, let me summarize. David from this point goes on to plot the murder of Uriah the Hittite to basically cover up this pregnancy. And he succeeds. He succeeds at killing him. And you have, so you have two extreme things going on here, right? You have the adultery that David partakes in, and then you have the murder or the plot of the murder, right? Which, by the way, his position as king, orchestrating that kind of, that, that kind of thing, that kind of murder, is essentially making him liable for that murder. David literally breaks four out of the ten commandments that's given, right? He's coveting a neighbor's wife, he's committing adultery, he's committing murder, and he's and his cover-up is essentially lying. And if we look at his heart, we can throw in there, he broke the second commandment as well as he has idolatry in his heart. David might as well has not read the Ten Commandments because he's doing a horrible job at obeying them. All this to say, David failed majorly. He failed majorly in his sins. In this situation with Bathsheba. There's no other way to look at it. There's no other way to slice the pie. In fact, if there was never a 2 Samuel chapter 12 and a Psalm 51 to follow that, we would never see David's repentance. And if we never saw David's repentance, we would probably be wondering right now today, this morning, reading this passage, was David really faithful to God? Right? And so we read, though, and... 2 Samuel 12 and Psalm 51, while David committed some of the worst sins, God in his grace restored David back into a proper relationship with him. If you are a Christian, there has been a point, will be a point, continues to be a point where you utterly fail God with your sins. It may not be as severe as David, although maybe for some of us it may be. The point is, we fail and sin badly. And while some of the sins may be a past thing, that doesn't mean it won't show up again in the future, right? I can say with confidence, all of us, including myself, we will utterly fail in our sins as we continue to live in this life. Because why? We're all sinners. And as much as we know what we should not do, 
what we should stay away from, what we should constantly fight with every ounce of strength that we have, we still fail. And sometimes in our failures, we think to ourselves, how can I overcome sin? How can I fight sin? It's just too hard. I'm tired of fighting and losing all the time. Our desires or ability is simply too weak. And we get discouraged. Because maybe the sin happens over and over and over again. And we begin to wonder, can God really forgive me of all my sins? And I'm messing up so bad. I'm sinning so bad. And I just can't seem to stop it. Can God really forgive me for my sins? Or maybe it's just that past sin that creeps back into your mind every once in a while. You're reminded of, of just the, the heinous sins you've committed and you hate yourself all over again. And you just wonder if God's grace really covered it. I have this uh, friend as a pastor at another church. You know, he was telling me about uh, uh, some of the ministry that he does. And there's this guy um, that he was working with. Uh, he came into his church doors. Uh, and he was actually um, a drug addict, a drug addict, and he received some counseling at this church. The pastor, my friend, was working with him, and eventually he became sober, right? He kicked the habit, became sober, and was clean. Uh, he, he kept on attending the church. He eventually became a member of the church, and he started to serve the church. Right? I mean, he, he, was, he was thriving, right? This kind of lasted for about a year. And then about a year, year goes by, right, and then all of a sudden he drops off the map. Just no contact. Pastor, you know, notices that he's not coming to church, tries to call him, no contact. Continues to call him every week, not picking up his phone. Until eventually, about maybe two to three months later, he finally gets a hold of the guy. Finally gets a hold of the guy, and he finds out that he went right back to his drugs. Something happened in his life, and he was doing hard drugs, by the way, right? Something happened to his life, hit a, hit a road bump, went back to his drug dealer, and went straight back to the drugs. And as my friend, the pastor, was trying to counsel him, trying to say, come back to the church. Just come back to the church. Let's talk about this. Let's work through this together. He proceeded to say to the pastor, like, no, I can't go back. Right? I, I mean, I, I, I've sinned too much. You know, I've wronged the church. I, I, I couldn't stay clean. God won't forgive me. Jesus is not there for me. Right? I need to get my life in order before Jesus will accept me back. And here's the thing, right? That's, that's the lie that Satan wants all of us to believe. That's the lie that Satan wants all of us to believe, that Jesus won't accept you back because you've sinned too much. That your sin is too heinous. That, that it's so bad that you shouldn't come back to the church, to the gospel, to, to a room, honestly, full of people who are the hypocrites, who are the sinners, who need the gospel, right? We need it the most. That's what, this is the gospel for people who are failures because there's only one person who's never failed in his life, and that's Christ. And so the gospel is there for all of us. There is no such thing that, there is no such sin that Jesus will not forgive. That's what we see an example of even King David, Right? And again, so we're reminded of certain truths. What, what, what does the gospel say 
to our failures and sins. What does the gospel have to say about that? And looking at David's life and looking at what happened and what happened in the aftermath here are two, again, simple truths for us to be reminded when we face these failures. First, like David, we need to repent. We need to repent. I know that sounds like, okay, well, yeah, right? And it maybe sounds kind of easy. It's like, come on, Pastor, you got to give me something more than that. But the reality is the great, one of the greatest gifts that God has given us is the gift of repentance. That we can come before a loving father and say, Lord, I, I, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me for my sins? And he will say, yes. Yes, I will. Right? Just like he did for King David. No matter how atrocious the sin, no matter how often we sin, whether it's the hundredth time, or the first time we're coming before Christ, if we turn to Jesus, if we ask for forgiveness, if we place our faith in him and believe in him, God will forgive us. God will forgive us. I mean, that's really the, Jesus came to this world to live that perfect life and to die on that cross and to be resurrected again to give forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him. And second, we need to remember, we need to remember, right, that as we're saved by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ, we need to remember that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has, gives us the power to change our lives for God's glory. We have all that we need in the person of the Holy Spirit to overcome and defeat sin. This idea that we cannot defeat sin is also a lie. Now, I'm not preaching a perfectionist here, like, oh, we can be perfect in this life. We can't. We can never be perfect in this life. We should strive for it, but we'll never be perfect. But the Holy Spirit does give us the power to defeat sin, to progressively defeat and become more righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Defeat sin and become more righteous. He'll, the Holy Spirit will help us continually grow in our faith in Christ, claiming victory over sin little by little. As we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, as we submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us all the tools and power that we need to defeat sin. Right? And so we have to understand that you know, it's, it's God's grace that gets us out of our failures and sins, not of our own doing. It's not of our own ability, but it's God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit. The last type of failure that we see this morning is the, the fear of failure. The fear of failure. This, this last type of failure is a little different, right? It has to do with fear, and, and fear can be a tricky thing. It can be a tricky thing. Fear can immobilize us. Before you begin a task or begin trying to be a good student or a parent or even begin to fight sin, we fail from the start. Right, because we just realize, well, we're going to fail anyways, why even begin? If we're going to fail anyways, why even begin? Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read, starting here, in verse 3. This is Paul writing to Timothy. This is his last letter before he dies. He's trying to encourage young Timothy here in the work of the ministry. He says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. 
As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Again, this context, right, is Paul is encouraging Timothy to remain bold, to remain bold and strong in the gospel ministry, right, the work that God has called him to do. And Paul again says in verse 7, right, we see that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In other words, when it comes to gospel ministry, Timothy is to conduct himself with one of boldness, not fear. Right? And as we read through the rest of the letter, we get glimpses of what Paul means about, about not having this fear, right? having this boldness. Right? Timothy is not to fear persecution for what he preaches. His life is in the hands of God. Right? He's not to worry about what people are going to say to him. He's not gonna, he shouldn't worry about the results of the ministry that he conducts, right? Having this potential fear of man or fear of lack of ability or fear of not being successful. He's not to worry about any of those things because God will be over all those. He just needs to be bold. He just needs to be faithful in doing the gospel ministry. Right, let's just think about this a little bit. Let's think about Timothy and his position, right? If, if he feared what people will think about him, right, and an apparently younger person, compared to the people he's leading or his other leaders, right? This fear of man can immobilize him. It can immobilize him. It can stop him from doing what he should be doing. It can stop him from doing what is right simply because he's afraid of what people might think about him. If Timothy fears uh, his ability or lack of ability, right, he, he can have a, a perfectionist attitude. If it can't be done the right way, well, I might as well not do it. Or maybe it's just not trusting in God enough, right? It's, it's me who accomplishes it, not God. And since I can't do it, well, then maybe I shouldn't do it. Right. Or if maybe if Timothy lacks or fears a lack of success, having a pessimistic attitude, then again, well, if it's not going to work anyways, right? If this new idea or this ministry is just not going to be successful, why even bother? Now, I know Paul is specifically talking here in this context about gospel ministry, which, by the way, we technically all partake in that, right? We all have our own forms of gospel ministry, okay? But this concept of the fear of failure, really, it it hits all aspects of life, all aspects of life. The fear of people, lack of ability or lack of success, all these fears, they're in us. They're in us. And sometimes because of them, we fail from the start. Because we don't ever begin. Right? And the heart matter behind this is just this, we're allowing the spirit of fear to control our lives. Right? And living in this, this fear, right? We, as we live in this fear, we're, we're believing in this lie, really, that if we cannot be successful by worldly standards, then God also will see you as a failure, which is a lie. It's completely not true. You know, um, when I was uh, at Cal State Long Beach doing my graduate studies, 
Um, there would be days, uh, I typically chose a Friday, uh, but there would be certain days that I would dedicate where I didn't have class. Like, you know what, I'm going to do some personal evangelism on a college campus. It's just the best place to do it, by the way. You know, the people are a little bit more willing to talk to you, and, and they're more, a little bit more open. And so I would go and do personal evangelism at Cal State Long Beach. And now, if there's anything to know about me, I, you know, I've gotten better over the years, right? But I just get extreme anxiety when I talk to someone I don't know. You know, I just, as someone I don't know, I just kind of, I get a little nervous and, and, you know, my heart starts to race and I just don't know what to say. And, and so, you know, I had to work on it a lot, actually. But, uh, you know, and so here I am, a young man at Cal State Long Beach. I want to do some personal evangelism. What I would do is I would try to psych myself up, right? I would stand from a distance. I would look and scan the field of who, who can I give the gospel to, right? And I would see somebody and I would literally, and I think people would probably thought, who is this, what is this guy doing? I would literally point to that person and be like, I'm going to give you the gospel. Yeah, you right there. Yeah, that's you. Yep, yeah, I'm going to give it to you. And then I would go, I'm going to walk up to you, and I'm going to say, hey, brother, I got some good news for you. Would you like to hear it? You know? Uh, or, you know, or I would go, I would go up, and I'd be like, hey, I'm John. What's your name? Let me tell you something. I got some good news for you. Right? I, I, would psych, I would play the situation out in my mind. This is how it's going to go. And I, this is how I'm going to give the gospel, right? And, and, and they're going to hear it, and they're going to love it, and it's going to be great. And I, I, I would play the whole situation out in my mind. And what would happen, and almost on a, on a weekly basis, this is what would happen. I would point to that person. I would see them, and I'd be like, all right, and I would start to walk. And as I walk, right, I, my heart began to beat. Boom, 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 boom. And I, as I got closer, it started to race more and more, and it got faster and faster, right? And what would happen is right as I would pass the person, I would see them. I would lock my, we would lock eyes, and I would just turn away and continue walking. <laughs> right? Everything I've planned, everything I put in my mind, just, just gone out the window because I was afraid. I feared. I feared the failure. I feared, oh, man, I'm going to tell this guy he's going to think I'm a nutcase or whatever it is. I, I was just so afraid of failure or what he might say or all these things that I just didn't even start. And this happened week in, week out. There was, you know, sometimes I did it, sometimes I didn't. But, you know, I just, this failure gripped me and it immobilized me. I just didn't even begin to do it. We have those feelings, right? We have those fears. We've all been there. Especially with evangelism, right? It can be a scary thing. We've all been there. And the question again, though, right, what does the gospel say about our fear of failures? What does it say? Again, Two simple truths to be reminded of. First, this is kind of like the identity but slightly different. We need to find our self-worth in Christ. We need to find and be reminded of our self-worth is in Christ. Right? That, you know, the, the fear of man or the fear of failure or all the, you know, what people might think or, or the results and all those things, right? All of that is placing stock on us. Right? It's in ourselves. If I can't do it, then I won't do it. Or, or if they don't accept me, then, then I'm a failure. Right? When in reality, our self-worth should be in Christ. Right? The loving and merciful God. The gracious God. And when we place our self-worth in Christ and our validation in Christ, we're reminded that, hey, it doesn't really matter what the results are. It doesn't really matter if we fail at things. It doesn't really matter if people reject us. Or what they think about us because I know what my Savior thinks of me. I know that I'm a, a child of God and I've been saved in Christ. 
and therefore my worth, my validation is in him and in no other. And when we remember that, this reminds us that what we need to do, what we're called to do, and this is the second truth that we need to remember, is that we need to be faithful to God. Right? Success is not defined by what the world defines as success. Success is defined by our faithfulness to God. It's our faithfulness to Christ and his word. Right? If, as long as we're faithful to obey him and to be obedient to him, then everything is all good. We can do things and by the, by the standards of the world can be epic failures. Epic failures according to the standards of the world. But in the eyes of God, successful. Because we've been faithful. And so this, this is freeing, right? Because as we fear failure or fear these things in life that happens to us, we can be reminded, well, I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to have any fear because all I need to do is be faithful to my God. And he's given everything that I needed to do to be faithful in the Holy Spirit. He's given us that power. He's given us the tools. We just need to be faithful to him and love him. And follow him. There is so much more to say about how the gospel triumphs over our failures. This is just really the tip of the iceberg. But I hope that in giving this message and, and talking about these truths that we're hearing this morning, that we're encouraged. We're all encouraged no matter where you're at in your faith. Whether you've, you've just trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ last week or you've been a saint for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That we're encouraged to fix our eyes upon Jesus and to never take our eyes, our eyes off him. And each and every day we fix our eyes on him and the gospel and be reminded of these simple truths that we can then overcome our failures and fear of failure. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you don't know Jesus, you don't have a personal relationship with him, and you're struggling with failure, you're struggling with why do I keep failing, why, do I, why can I not do anything right, I plead to you this morning, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. The gospel will renew your heart. Because here's the freeing truth, okay? If you're going to depend on yourself, you're going to fail. But if you depend upon Jesus and his gospel and trust in him and his work that he's done for you on the cross, you're going to succeed. Because your self-worth and identity is in him. And so I plead with you, come to Jesus and you will see what real success is. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning. We thank you for this time that we're able to open up your word and be in your word and to hear these truths about how the gospel triumphs over our failures. Lord, let these truths seep deep into our hearts and deep into our minds that we can be reminded of them. Lord, that the gospel is so much better and so much greater. Lord, may... You just be, help us to remind us of that, Lord. And for any of us here that, that if we don't know Jesus, Lord, I pray that you grip their hearts now and reveal to them the goodness of your gospel and your grace and that you may save them. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.